This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 233, Swords. I am Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. They say the pen is mightier than the sword. Me, I've never seen a pen that can cut a sword in half. Swords are powerful things. The more we know about them, the better. This week we will discuss the road from weapons of war to weapons of peace and back again. A sword of myth and legend that may be too powerful to use. The cool striping marks on really fancy swords and what it means for the church. And a cardboard sword I sacrificed for the good of the children. We'll start with what I've been preaching. So is the expression beat swords into plowshares? Or is it beat plowshares into swords? Maybe you're pretty sure it's the first. Maybe you're pretty sure it's the second. If after four and a half seasons you've gotten to know me and my questions fairly well, you probably think it's both. And there's a very good chance that no matter what your answer is, you're asking, and what in the world is a plowshare anyway? Well, it is both, and we'll get to that in a second. But to answer the question I posed on your behalf, a plowshare is the blade of a plow. Most seeds do better if they're deep in the earth instead of just sitting on top of it. A plowshare cuts the ground and lets the seed settle into the furrow. Then, most likely, it's covered up by the previously tilled ground and left there to do its thing. Plowshares, the good ones anyway, were made of bronze or iron in ancient Israel. And that was a problem, because metalworking was not one of Israel's strengths. In fact, 1 Samuel 13, verses 19-22 through 22 tell how the Philistines did not allow Israel to engage in blacksmithing at all back in the days of Samuel and Saul. With metal in short supply, they might be forced to convert one into another. And that's a serious commitment. If you beat your plowshare into a sword, you better be sure war is coming, because you're basically committing to not plowing your field that year. Likewise, if you beat your sword into a plowshare, you're seriously limiting your ability to make war. Will there be war this season, or will there be peace? Make your prediction, and don't be wrong. Your life literally depends on it. The prophets use this language to emphasize the surety of God's promises. For instance, in Joel 3, verses 10 through 12, the prophet warns the nations by writing, Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak man say, I am a warrior. Hurry and come down, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, Lord, your warriors. Let the nations be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will set to judge all the surrounding nations. The valley mentioned here is figurative. The battle is too, although some premillennialists might disagree with me on that. After all, you don't really go up to a valley, you go down. Jehoshaphat is Hebrew for Yahweh judges. Joel's point is that the pain inflicted by Assyria, and by extension other evil nations, would be punished by God in due course of time. There's no point in them pretending like life is just business as usual, even in the short term. Better to brace for impact right here, right now. Not that that would be able to stave off God's vengeance anyway. It's ultimately a spiritual victory for a spiritual nation, described in verses 20 and 21, as the prophecy comes to a conclusion. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. God's people are promised a dramatic, climactic victory. That brings us to Isaiah 2.4 in its parallel passage in Micah 4.3. And he will judge between the nations and will mediate for many peoples. 
and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not lift up a sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. The same conflict is seen here, except from the perspective of God's chosen ones. In the last days, he writes in verse 2, the Messianic age, God's house would be established in Zion. All nations would flow to it. The connection to Pentecost in Acts 2 is obvious. People came from all over the world and heard about Jesus' death on the cross for the sins of mankind. Eventually, Gentiles will be incorporated into this fellowship as well. People who once considered one another natural and inevitable enemies suddenly were family. You were all one in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.28. And this prophecy has futuristic implications as well. The peace that we find in Jesus today here on earth is only a foretaste of the blessings coming in heavenly realms. We are still, in a very real sense, living in anticipation of the gathering in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So the choice is yours. Plowshares into swords or swords into plowshares? Are you going to take up arms against God, resist his will for your life, and in the end pay the ultimate consequence? Or are you going to quit kicking against the goad, to use Jesus' words from Acts 26.14, and start working in his field? Will there be war this season, or will there be peace? Make your prediction, and don't be wrong. Your soul literally depends on it. This is what I've been reading. Bernard Cornwell is well known for historical novels. In his novel 1356, the scene is the Middle Ages and the Hundred Years' War between France and England. An English-born knight named Thomas of Hookton is the leader of a mercenary group running unattached in what we would call France in the mid-14th century. Actual borders between France and England back in those days were surprisingly complicated. There's a story circulating that the sword used by the Apostle Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, which they call Les Malices, is hidden somewhere in France, and that possessing it would give the bearer immense power, either for good or for evil. If that sounds a bit like the story of the Holy Grail, it's no accident. In an earlier book by Cornwell, Thomas found the Holy Grail and destroyed it, believing, rightly so, the conflict over the artifact was itself a curse, and having one side claim victory in the struggle would only make things worse. He finds Le Malice also, I guess he's just lucky like that, and he destroys Le Malice too, casting it on a pile of broken swords intended to be melted down. The Battle of Poitiers, which serves as the climax of the book, is historical. The kings of France and England warring against one another, the various kidnappings of prominent figures for ransom, the rise of the longbow as a war weapon, all historical. Thomas of Hookton, of course, is fictitious, as are most of the important characters in the book. Les Malices, of course, is real, although that name is not found in the Bible. All the gospel accounts tell of Peter carrying a sword from the institution of the Lord's Supper to the scene of Jesus' betrayal. John 18, verses 10 and 11 specifically states, how he cut off the right ear of Malchus, a slave of the high priest. The Black Friars are the Catholic priests obsessed with acquiring the sword in the book. They're real too. They're more commonly referred to as the Dominicans, or the Order of Preachers. Writers like Cornwell love the Dominicans. Their zeal in spreading truth and opposing heresy, both of which as defined by the Pope, led to excesses such as the Inquisition, the Bonfire of the Vanities, opposition to scientific advancement, and such like. If you see a crazy Catholic priest in a black robe in a movie, chances are he's supposed to be a Dominican. All that said, the willingness to do anything and everything to acquire a so-called holy relic absolutely fits the stereotypical narrative for Dominicans. 
I certainly don't cast aspersions here against any Catholics or Dominican priests who may be listening today. There's fiction and there's reality. Learn the difference. Tell your friends about it. I find the obsession with holy relics highly disturbing in general. But obsessing over a sword, of all things, is even worse. Are we really supposed to believe a sword plays a role in pursuing the kingdom of Jesus Christ when the Lord himself said precisely the opposite? He tells Pilate in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. My servants would be fighting, he says. And that brings up the biggest head-scratcher of the whole Lamalise myth. Someone already raised this very sword to further the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and Jesus himself told him to put it away. Are we to believe church officials know better than Jesus how to administer his will in the world? Never mind, don't answer that. So why the stories? Why have we come up with one excuse after another over the last 2,000 years to wage carnal war in Jesus' name? I'll give you my opinion for what it's worth. I think people, especially men, just really like swords. They like the show of strength the sword provides. They like imposing their will on others. More than a handful of us, to put it bluntly, would love to use a sword against an actual human or two whom they find objectionable in some way. It's part of the human condition, stained by sin, that Jesus is trying to cure. Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, and things like these They don't stop being works of the flesh just because we do them in the name of Jesus. Jesus says, put down your sword. The sword of the Spirit he gives you in exchange will be remarkably ineffective at waging war as the world defines war. But it is an absolute guarantee of victory in the only war that really counts. This is what I've been hearing. The first thing you should know about Damascus steel is it doesn't come from Damascus. Damascus is in Syria. Steel has its origins east of there, in modern-day Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. It was there that ironmongers learned that introducing elements such as carbon and manganese into the forging process helped iron get much stronger, much more durable, and take a sharper edge. It also produced cool, wavy lines in the metal when it was polished. The non-iron elements never completely lost their identity, but still they were incorporated into the metal in such a way that they could not be taken out again. The sword, knife, or armor that resulted was stronger as a result. The second thing you should know about Damascus steel is most of what is termed Damascus steel today is quite different. European steel manufacturers figured out a different process to make steel just in time for a couple of world wars. Needless to say, that had both positive and negative results. It is European steel technology that dominates the world market today. Modern Damascus steel, complete with the much-desired wavy marks, is made by stacking pieces of differently composed steel alloys, fusing them together, stretching them, cutting them, and stacking them again to start the process all over again. A stack of five or six different steel plates can in this way become hundreds of layers in a Damascus steel blade. The point I want to make works in either case. Iron certainly does sharpen iron, as Solomon told us in Proverbs 27.17. But iron in isolation will never be better than what it is. And by modern standards, iron is surprisingly ineffective. Even cast iron, which works very well in some applications, is by definition more than 2% carbon. 
You need something else in the mix to help the iron do what iron does. I see Paul making use of this principle in his teachings about the body of Christ, especially in Galatians. Galatians 3.28 tells us that Jews and Gentiles, bondmen and freemen, men and women, all combine to make the body of Christ. We become one in him. That is, we are all absorbed into the body. We don't cease to have our individual natures, but those natures fade dramatically into the background in the wake of the refining process Jesus is working in us. Paul uses the body analogy in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Eyes remain eyes. Ears remain ears. God made us that way. God wants us that way. But we don't celebrate the greatness of eyes and ears. We celebrate the head, Jesus Christ. Over the centuries, we have seen countless efforts to subvert this plan. The key to unity, we've been told, is to eliminate everyone different from ourselves. We have subdivided the body of Christ by skin color, native language, economics, age, and a host of other factors. The more homogenous the group, the greater the unity. And that works if you just want the look of Damascus steel. But real strength, real resilience, real effectiveness is found by embracing differences of opinion and experience, not excluding them. Please note I mentioned opinion and experience particularly. I'm not saying we should open the door of Jesus' church to those who have not been bought by the blood. That's a whole conversation beyond our scope here. I'm saying we have natural, God-authorized differences in the body of Christ. God wants it that way, and he is working it out for our benefit. Overcoming our differences is not only possible within the confines of the gospel, it is needful. Geography, of course, is different. You can't be united with brethren you don't see and may never meet. But even this barrier is falling a bit in the digital age. I'm not suggesting online chat groups can or should replace local groups of believers. But you do have opportunities now to forge new relationships with believers in far-off places, including Georgetown, Texas. I know I'm stronger in my faith now because of you, and I thank you for it. And I hope and pray that whether you're down the road or half a planet away, what I'm doing here in this space is building you up as well. This is what I've been playing. Most games have turns. Turns implies a turn order. And especially with games involving multiple players, complicated turns, and or opportunities to change the turn order, a first player marker is helpful. Most first player markers are simple pieces of cardboard, probably decorated to fit with the artistic aesthetic of the rest of the game. Some first player markers are huge, bulky, and frankly kind of ridiculous. I'm all in favor of theme, but really, do we need a half-pound piece of sculpted resin that probably increased the cost of the game by $5 when I could get the job done with a penny from my change jar? Anyway, I say all that to say this. My favorite first-player marker of all time came with Medieval Academy, a terrific card drafting and action selection game in which you are students in a school where great knights are being trained in a variety of disciplines. You choose cards that will help you excel at combat, learning, slaying dragons, helping the poor, and currying favor with the king. It's a lot of fun, and maybe I'll talk about it more another time. But today I want to talk about the first player marker, which is a cardboard sword about three inches long. My wife is an accomplished teacher of Bible classes, especially children. And she's always on the lookout for visual aids that will get them to talk less about Spider-Man and more about the lesson of the week. One day, the class was on the Ehud story in Judges 3. Tracy's left-handed, so she talks about Ehud whenever she can, because Ehud was left-handed too. 
So when Ehud went to see fat old King Eglon, they checked him for weapons on the wrong side. So he was able to get up close and stab fat old King Eglon right in the stomach. A tip for teachers of young children. Anytime you can emphasize the gory and disgusting aspects of the Bible story, you should do that. Your students will be riveted, especially the boys. Anyway, they did some kind of role-playing exercise, and all the children went home remembering very well the story of left-handed Ehud and fat old King Eglon. Well, Tracy just left the sword in the classroom after that. She knew swords and knives were going to come up again before too long. Soon, David was cutting off Goliath's head. Ezekiel was giving himself a haircut. Peter was trying to cut off Malchus's head, etc. This is a good time to remind you the sword is made out of cardboard. Combine pieces of cardboard, enthusiastic children, and repeated energetic activity, and the results are predictable. One day, Tracy gave me the bad news. The Medieval Academy sword was damaged beyond repair. I immediately went to the knife drawer, got a weapon that wasn't made out of cardboard, and no, of course I didn't. I smiled and said, well, that figures. And I resigned myself to playing Medieval Academy with a bent sword or no sword at all the next time. No big deal. In fact, I counted myself blessed to have been asked to sacrifice something in the cause of Bible class, especially something I really wouldn't miss that much. Not every offense is actionable. And frankly, I can't imagine ever going to war in response to a board game-related crime, especially not war against a child. It reminds me a bit of the brethren taking one another to court in 1 Corinthians 6. Why not be wrong, Paul asks them. Could any personal squabble possibly be worth endangering the harmony of the local church? Or how about the man who interrupted Jesus' sermon in Luke twelve thirteen to ask him to arbitrate an inheritance dispute between him and his brother? Is a better split of carnal things worth distracting souls from spiritual things? There are times when you will have to turn the sword of the Spirit on our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's tragic, but it's true. It's also, I like to think, a small percentage of the work you're trying to do. If you see Euodia and Syntyche feuding on the other side of the auditorium, maybe you can be the true yoke fellow Paul refers to in Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. In any case, foster a loving environment wherever and whenever you can. And remember Galatians 5.15, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. I've collected plenty of sword scars over the years, most of them in my back. Maybe you have too. But maybe if you put your sword down, your so-called enemy in the church will put his down too. Worst case scenario, you go to heaven and he doesn't. Best case, you both go to heaven. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.